There might be one or two, there probably are one or two uh, who are here today who weren't able to make yesterday, in which case I'd hate you to feel well, literally all at sea as we're looking at Jonah. Um, a friend of mine came and preached uh, for us as we launched our Gospel Yorkshire organisation and he, he took the, the entire book in one sermon in about 40 minutes and it was stimulating, refreshing and in no, and in no sense overladen. Because it's an easy story to follow, isn't it? We know what happens. Here's a, here's a preacher with a, with a powerful, uh, well-known, respected ministry. He's in the royal court. So what are our modern equivalents? St. Helen's Bishop's Gate, Ash Carter, a respected man, a steam ministry, and then he's called to do something which is unbearably humiliating, dangerous, uh, difficult and distasteful because he's called to go to the heart of the Assyrian Empire, the, the, the sworn enemies of God's covenant people and preach seemingly a word of judgment, verse 2 of chapter 1. But as we'll learn hopefully next session, actually he has got this terrible anxiety that this might be a mercy mission. He may end up speaking grace to these awful people with blood-stained hands. And then what would that do to his ministry? It would trash it in the eyes of his fellow Israelites. So we know he ran from... Well, Andy and I sat down yesterday, and Andy put me straight on one or two things in Jonah, and very helpfully showed me that Jonah is about a man like you and me who runs from God's laws and who runs from God's loves. Now, don't credit Andy with that very clear and helpful statement because he only nicked it from Mark Dever. But it's good, isn't it? So what's Jonah about? It's about people like you and me who run from God's laws, what God tells us to do, and we run from God's loves. And we run into our loves and try to build our kingdom. And we're looking at um, Jonah particularly through the lens of God's grace. And we're as I said yesterday, we're not so much trying to categorise grace, do a theological exploration of grace, but just see how, how grace is presented in the book of Jonah in these four chapters. And we saw firstly that, that it's, uh, first chapter one, is, chapter one is all about God's sovereign grace, his grace which, which God will have his way. He's, we, we were singing, through the storm, you are Lord, Lord of all. Who else sang that before us? Jonah, inside the fish's belly. The sailors as they saw God's incredible sovereign might. And then uh, we saw how God's grace, chapter 2, was really irresistible. Jonah knew he couldn't avoid it. He literally couldn't run any further. There's not much wriggle room in a whale's stomach. And this prayer is the beginning of Jonah's turning back to God as he prays. And he insists, good Calvinist that he is, Jonah 2, verse 9, salvation belongs to the Lord. Our God is a rescuing God who loves to rescue people who need rescuing, of course, because we know the story. Who might those people include? The people of Nineveh. And that is Jonah's deepest anxiety, that God might save pagans. So chapter 3, we're looking at limitless grace. God's grace, which is quite... Limitless, and we'll look at that under four headings. Firstly, the great recommission. 3 verse 1, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. 
the word Lord comes to me, it may come to you a fifth time, a twelfth time, a three thousandth time. One of my children told me this morning about his favourite number. If you've got a favourite number, I focus on that, eight or six, is 97. I like that very much. Kids got style. His favourite number is 97. And the word of the Lord often comes to us the 97th time, doesn't it? Because we are slow and we're dim and we're stubborn and we listen to ourselves, but God is continually speaking. And some of the most important lessons we learn about God's grace, some of the lessons which are brand new, which we'd never thought about before, they're the lessons we finally submit to, that God's been talking to us about through months and maybe years and maybe many years. So Jonah is, let's get the hymn right, ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven. Who like Jonah? His praise should sing. Who like you and I? His praise should sing. Because God is a forgiving God. Here's a question, please don't answer out loud. But what would you do if you were in charge of Jonah's whale? You knew very well there was a man who was offending you. You'd sent a whale and you commissioned that whale to swallow Jonah alive. You and I would be tempted to let those stomach acids do their work, wouldn't we? Burn the man up and bring him under a full and final judgment. But God is a forgiving God. A God who, as Micah says, delights to show mercy. What do you delight to do? We delight to do many things. But just, just, just savour that word, delight. And then ask yourself, what does God delight to do and it's showing mercy as Jonah was discovering as Jonah will discover more and the mercy of God in the salvation which comes through Jesus Christ is his supreme delight why don't we remind ourselves of the gospel drama which gripped the apostle Paul 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 13 Paul never tired of telling his story I think, I think Paul would thoroughly approve of, I think it's C.J. Mahaney who says we must never get over our salvation. Paul says, I can't get over it. 1 Timothy 1.13 Timothy, though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy. Maybe because like those Ninevites, he acted in ignorance and unbelief. Oh, a willful ignorance. He's not saying... I couldn't, I, couldn't, I couldn't do anything but. It wasn't my fault. It was a deliberate ignorance and a, and a concerted unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. And this is not just his story, Paul is saying to Timothy. This, this is just universal truth. It's a, a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. That's no pious guff. That's a heart-rending confession. So who is the worst sinner, according to you, in this room? All of us know the answer. It's us. How can we be sure of that? We can be sure, we must be sure, because nobody has seen our hearts like we have, the Lord apart. 
Nobody has heard all the words we've spoken, all the things we've done. You are the worst sinner you know, and I'm the worst I know. And we get over our salvation in Christ. So, Jonah is forgiven by God and he's commissioned by God. God loves to choose to save and to commission unlikely people. The Apostle Paul says, look, it's me. The Apostle to the Gentiles, which is just New Testament speak for the whole world. Those who aren't Jews. He has been commissioned. Who did Jesus like to spend time with and show transforming grace to? The undesirables very dodgy, dubious people and the outcasts. I did a church away weekend back in uh, February or March, it was, in Scotland, for a friend of mine who, who pastors what I think is the poorest congregation, uh, probably one of the poorest evangelical congregations in the UK. And uh, being a speaker, when you're a speaker at these things and it's a residential, often you get a room to yourself. And I was looking forward to that, just a bit of quiet. And I could read and this and that. And I was taken through this sort of winding maze of this rundown Christian centre in, in the Highlands. Uh, and, and the door was opened into this room. My first thought was, it's big. My second follow-up thought was, there's a lot of beds in here. And there was about eight bunks. And we had an absolute blast. But I knew some of these guys already. And then I, I was learning their stories. And it was like, the guy above me, okay. Yeah, he's now on methadone, which is brilliant because he's been heroin addicted for many years. That guy uh, rough sleeps in London, or has done for a dozen years, for about six months here, because it's lucrative. So he leaves his council flat in Edinburgh, he goes down to London, he, he, he gets all his money, it's a nice earn, and then he goes back. And He bought two things away to the weekend. He bought a bottle of water, and he bought a toothbrush. And I said, Colin, you, you, know, you travel light, don't you? I said, show me your kit bag, bottle of water, toothbrush. Colin has one tooth. And he, he was very proud of this, Jake. He said he needed to look after the tooth, the whole tooth, and nothing but the tooth. <laughs> That's why he's got his kit bag. And we went all around the room, and people with incredible, heartbreaking stories of, of, of emotional, physical, sexual abuse committed against them. Some of them have been abusers in turn. Terrible stories of, of addiction, past and ongoing. Um, what a crew we were. And then there's me with all my privileges and all my sins, one of the worst of all. And it was just such a blessing to be with these dear, dear people united in new life in Christ. It would be a great prayer for you to pray, wouldn't it, as, as Christchurch Earlsfield, that God would make you as diverse as you could be. All sorts of people. There should be... There should be no reason that people can come in and go, ah, oh, I get why these people hang out together. People should come in and go, they're so different. There's got to be tensions here, and I bet they are, the visitors should be thinking, but they are, they're working at it, they're putting together, they're looking out for each other, and I'm sure you do. But keep praying for diversity, backgrounds, ethnicities, life stages. Because God loves variety. And God saves all sorts of extraordinary people. And God is, God is marching out of that whale's belly to save desperately needy, hell-deserving pagans. 
and we need to join that march too. So, where are we? The Great Recommission, God forgives and God commissions, and let's be sure God has commissioned us. We're all Matthew 28 people, Amen. Amen. Amen, that is a relief. Good, we're to go into all the world and make disciples. Now, there were centuries of Christian history where, where Christians sincerely believed that was an exclusively apostolic command. So given to, to the 11 and the 12, not to you and me. Flat wrong, of course. The Great Commission is urgent and compelling for us. So Great Recommission, but boy, is this a daunting task. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord. Well, you would, wouldn't you? If, if, if you'd been vomited out in a pool of whale sick, you would do anything that God told you to do. He is God. He's powerful. He knows what he's doing, and he's rich in mercy, as Jonah was discovering. And so he obeys the word of the Lord. I was looking at these notes this morning. I thought of 2 Corinthians 5.11. 2 Corinthians 5.11, Therefore, since we know what it is to fear God... We seek to persuade men. And that's Jonah, isn't it? So often we get the verse wrong and we make it, therefore, since we know what it is to fear men, we seek to persuade God. And that could be Jonah's reading of that verse, couldn't it? But he's getting it the right way round. When you know wrath and you know mercy, you know a God you've got to worship. And people who will either one day either face wrath or go into heaven, the resting place of mercy. But it's a daunting task. Let's not be under any illusions about that. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach. It was a large city. It took three days to, to go through it. And that can mean different things. Greater Nineveh was a huge area. And perhaps a walk might take three days across. The city itself had an was, was the size of Huddersfield, pretty very similar to Huddersfield, actually. 8th century BC, Nineveh, 21st century Huddersfield. I'm sure there's lots and lots of similarities, and some of you have been to uh, that part of industrial West Yorkshire might know the same. So a three-day visit probably meant, look, if you're going to get to know it, if you're going to go to the museums and the IMAX and this and that, you'd, you'd need to spend three days on your itinerary. It was an impressive place. But emphatically, it belonged to different people, a different tribe. It was difficult a different culture, a different religion, a different language. Did Jonah need an interpreter? I guess he did. They would know straight away that he was a foreigner, and he was a foreigner belonging to a defeated foe. They'd say, we're our tribe, and you're your tribe, and we're the right tribe, and you're the wrong tribe. And that means everything. I was at Griffin Park on Friday night with one of my sons to watch Brentford. I used to be a chaplain there when I was at, at Gunnersbury. And we had a great night. And talk about two tribes going to war, because Brentford were playing QPR. And there's a whole envy thing that goes on amongst Brentford players of QPR. They've got all the money and they've had all the attention. They've won lots of things. And they're bigger. And they're better. And there's this stubborn pride amongst Brentford supporters. The air of London is, is, is less, you know, is less cool. The club is smaller. The club, the club won a lot in 1940, I think it's six, seven and eight, but, but not much before, not much after. A little flurry in the 1930s of success. But whole decades are really not very much going on apart from financial crises. Um, and back in, I think it was the 60s or 70s, QPR tried to buy Brentford in order to liquidate the assets. They wanted the destruction of 
Brentford. So you can imagine the older, the older boys out on a Friday night. And so when, when 11,000, and now for Brentford, that's a huge crowd. 11,000 Brentford fans saw that goal go in, and the team won one. Even, the roof came off. It was all those years of frustration and things of inadequacy and envy. You know, we just shouted into the sky. It was brilliant. Two different tribes and one finally getting something back over the other. And it's, we have to remember how very tribal and separated this ancient world was. And so when Jonah goes in from the wrong defeated tribe saying, in 40 days your empire is going to be smashed. Well, what did they think? It's almost impossible to know, isn't it? Some would, th would have thought, well, here's this kind of um, end-of-the-world, doomsday scenario prophet, and he's just a religious extremist, so they can, uh, they can discredit him. Others would have thought this was just some sort of silly religious suicide mission. They should lock him up, perhaps beat him up as well. What was, what was Jonah thinking? That's even harder to know. Was Jonah feeling full of prophetic zeal? Full of prophetic inadequacy and doubt? I think he was certainly feeling full of fear. Yes, trying to keep his eyes on the Lord and fear him, but trembling as he spoke this unbelievable message to people who didn't want to hear some of us do some street work in town. When you say street work, well, we just give out Christian leaflets. The horrible old word is tracts. And we, uh, we try to engage people in gospel conversation. Uh, and we do that outside. We do it outside the roughest pub in the town, not because it's just the best, best through fair of, of, uh, for football. So that's where we do it. And we, we get to know some of the guys in those pubs who are very desperate and broken people. But it's a great privilege, but our message sounds silly and unbelievable and unwanted that we bring the best news anyone has ever heard. But God has commissioned us to do it. And you know, when you get involved in evangelism, you may have discovered this. Sometimes it works. Have you discovered this yet? What is the least enthusiastically responded to challenge in the church? It's evangelism, isn't it? Let's do evangelism together. Okay, you know, put on a nice meal, a posh meal, invite your friends, and we know the preacher's going to be super sensitive. That's not too traumatic. By the way, there are no posh meals <laughs> where I'm now living. We, that, that kind of thing would just not work at all. Pie and peas, that gets them in. <laughs> There's no tablecloth, so... But it's, you know, we, we just tweak our evangelism to be context-sensitive. That's not too traumatic. But the actual face-to-face -face relational, I will tell you that Jesus Christ died to save people like you who have broken God's law. That's, that's really stressful. That's really hard. But sometimes it works. In fact, look around. It's worked with us, hasn't it? It might be even that God knows what he's doing. So in 2 Corinthians 5, where Paul says, therefore, since we know what it is to fear the Lord, we seek to persuade men. He's not saying, do you know, it's just so easy. 
When that penny drops, you've got to fear God, you can do anything. He's not saying that at all. The whole context is about how stressful and traumatic and difficult it is, how fierce the opposition is. Even if in our sector age, that's the opposition of just indifference. A studied, settled indifference. Paul's saying it's really stressful, it's really hard, it's really costly, and it is. But it really, really works. I'm what, um, what you call a Calvinist. I don't follow John Calvin, but I follow the teachings of the Bible, which John Calvin had a genius for expressing so clearly. And I would have had a breakdown already in ministry if I didn't sincerely believe that God chooses to save people. And those he chooses to save will be saved. They will respond to the call of the gospel, and thereby united to Jesus, they will be led safely all the way to heaven. I think it was, uh, was Charles Spurgeon, a Victorian Baptist preacher, who said that he could, that the, the doctrine of God's sovereignty, which is, is handled as controversial, difficult, and embarrassing in some Christian circles, but he said, that is a pillow that I can rest my head on. That is a pillow that I can rest my head on. And that's our pillow as well, isn't it? God knows what he's doing and is powerful enough to do what he's planned to do, including the salvation of his chosen people. So Jonah literally does not know what's going to happen. He only knows one thing. God can do whatever he chooses in the city of Nineveh. So here we are, we're in Jonah's faithful obedience. I think I've strayed into that territory already, so I'll try and be a little bit briefer here. He obeys the word of the Lord. He's given the message of God, the message to proclaim judgment. And, and as he responds, and he obeys, God works. The, now, Jonah doesn't put the theological packaging around this, and that's fine. But you and I know what believed God means in terms of the work of God to get these scoffing, superior Ninevites listening to this prophet. I think there must be something about Jonah's tone and his zeal, even down to his physical appearance, which shocked them out of their hostility and their indifference. John Wesley said, set a man on fire with love for Christ and people will come from miles around to watch him burn. Certainly, Jonah knew what he'd been rescued from and what he deserved. I think there would have been an earnestness, an urgency in his tone because he knew what the Ninevites deserved. And he knew that God who would give it to them. But remember how Jesus said that he would be to his generation like the sign of Jonah. He would walk from the grave and stun and shock a complacent, arrogant world. Well, Jonah's that man already, isn't he? And if you've been in a whale's stomach for three days, well, you might need to change your clothes because most of your clothes will be burnt away. Your skin will be blistered. Your eyes will be bloodshot. He'd be in a shocking physical state. Who is this man? How did he, how did he get like that? Ah, oh, well, he's, he says he came from a whale. 
And Jesus says to an arrogant, hostile world with nail marks on his hands, repent and believe the good news. Man is destined to die once, Nineveh, and after that, it's judgment. That's what the verse in Hebrews really says. After that, judgment. And that is what Jonah is saying. And the Ninevites get on their faces because Jonah is faithfully obedient, finally, and they are obedient by putting their faith in what Jonah says. The king, verse 6, gets up from his throne and gets on his face when he's taken off his royal robes and he's put on his sackcloth and he's in the dust. Now what is he doing by getting in the dust? He's, he's, he's personally and in a powerfully visual way saying we need to repent of our wickedness. Because this prophet is to be listened to. This prophet is to be obeyed. And this is to be a national thing. Remember the kind of solidarity of, of tribes and nations in those days. What the king does, the people do. They are one people. They stand as one people before God. And so here's a command that goes out. Not even the cattle, the sheep, are to eat or drink. And it's almost comical, isn't it? We're going to fast... They're going to fast on the farm as well. Everybody, everything is going to fast. It's, it's a desperate attempt to respond to this extraordinary messenger from an unknown God, but he is the God we know is there, and every heart knows is holy and sovereign. Verse 8, let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? Who knows? God may relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. <coughs> the king, in other words, believes what Jonah thinks might be God's plan all along that the door of judgment may not be completely and suddenly slammed shut. That door which proclaims judgment might also be a door of hope. Psalm 30 is one of my favourite psalms, and there's, there's two verses in the middle of uh, those, that psalm, in Psalm 30, which Martin Luther called a, a mini-Bible. And the psalmist puts a question to God. He says, If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? And then he says, But with you there is forgiveness. Therefore, you are feared. Wouldn't it be lovely if Jonah knew that psalm? He could preach it, couldn't he? And if they had testimony time, his little street preaching sessions in the, the street corners of Nineveh, he could say, well, let me tell you what that means in my life. If God had kept a record of my sins, he would have sent me to the bottom of the Mediterranean Sea. But he's a forgiving God, and I want you to know that. 
and he's sent me to tell you that he's holy. It's the Ninevites to discover that he was forgiving as well. And that is just what they did discover. It's, it's just extraordinary, isn't it? These people had known nothing of the, of the ways of this covenant God, but are suddenly catapulted into covenant grace. Hang on, covenant grace is Hebrew. It's Semitic. It's for Israelites only. It's like an exclusive London club. You've got to have enough money, the right social connections, perhaps the right education. Except you don't need connections or money to be in this covenant. You need to be an Israelite. And then by default you're in. But suddenly this, 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 this covenant seems to have holes in it and, and, and all sorts of other people are, are slipping in. Because murderous Assyrians are receiving mercy. And nobody ever receives God's mercy outside of his covenant of grace. And here's an extra thought. John Calvin described uh, God's mercy as coming so exclusively through Jesus. He said Jesus is like the funnel. Not the most flattering illustration of the Son of God, is it? He said, Jesus is like a funnel, and there's not one drop of mercy and grace that flow into the world except through Jesus. And you know what that means? At the cost of his lifeblood. So verse 10, God is showing mercy to the Ninevites through Jesus because of his covenant love. So, finally, there is an ongoing challenge. Because you know, you've, you've, you've joined the dots. This is a picture and a tiny foretaste of what God would one, do, one day do through a different prophet, the Lord Jesus Christ, and through his anointed prophets and prophetesses. I really hope you have a prophetic ministry. I work and, and am privileged to live in a town where there are lots of prophetic ministries, and much is made of prophecy. So I'm always asking my Pentecostal charismatic, I say, I'm a Pentecostal, and I have charismatic gifts. Meaning, at least I mean, and I sometimes explain it, I've been drenched in the Holy Spirit when I put my faith in the Lord Jesus. I've been empowered with spiritual gifts to live as a Christian and to serve as a Christian. I have a prophetic ministry, as does my wife, she's a prophetess, and as do my children, they're many prophets. And so do you, whatever your stage of life. We have a prophetic ministry of declaring the gospel. Oh, you might say, that's not what they mean when they talk about prophecy. Or what is bigger and what is more important, what is more beautiful, what is more true and urgent? It's the word of the gospel. So our ongoing challenge is to bring this gospel word to the world as prefigured here in this most extraordinary, unexpected, unexpected journey from Jonah the foretaste of the great commission which the church is to believe. 
and to respond to. So you need to think this through. What does that mean in Earlsfield? What does it mean for your church with your limited gifts, time, resources? What does it mean to bring this message to pagan people who are about as arrogant and as indifferent as your average Ninevite? What does it mean for us? What does it mean in Yorkshire? Where every day in Yorkshire, 160 people die. And if you think about perhaps a leader state, an evangelical church of any stripe, as some indicator of spiritual state, three to four of those people will go to heaven. And the rest, the gospel compels us to believe, will go to hell. What does it mean for us in our town, a town the size of Nineveh, perhaps in the mindset of Nineveh? John Wesley loved our adopted part of the world, and he once, when he was travelling from Lancashire, said, I rode over the mountains to Huddersfield. A wilder people I have never met in all of England. Twenty years later, that town he looked on was littered with churches and church plants. The fabric of the town, the social fabric, was transformed by the preaching and the believing of the gospel. Yes, with one or two anointed preachers, but with people who drank in the gospel and who made sure that gospel worked itself out in their marriages, their parenting, their business practice, their farming. And the town was changed. And all those chapels I referred to yesterday, if you were here, are monuments to what God has done. Now, God sent revival to Nineveh. And our generation of, of, of early 21st century Christians, we're a bit sceptical about revival. We've never seen it. We think any accounts we've heard of it or read of it, it's pretty a bit overflated. Perhaps the, the figures and facts are massaged a little. We can't see any likelihood of revival. And we're right, many of us, to be disturbed by... Certainly, I, I became a Christian on the back end of a culture where there was an emphasis on evangelism in the churches I first knew, but much on praying for revival. And that was baptising irresponsibility. As far as I thought then, and as far as I think now, let's pray for revival. But let's work jolly hard. Confident that the arm of the Lord is not too short to save. And let's expect to be surprised. Because God's grace is limitless. I've heard some of your stories already. They're thrilling and enriching to hear how God has met some of you in the most unlikely ways and places. Let's be hungry to see people saved from all sorts of places. Because one day they and we will be praising God with Ninevites in heaven. What a thought. What an anticipation. Well, I'm going to pray, and that will leave us some time to have coffee and fellowship. And then later on, we're going to come back and look at Jonah 4. Let's pray. Lord, we believe that nothing is too hard for you. And we thank you, Lord, that you raised your son, the Lord Jesus, from the depths of the grave. 
and the depths of the hell he endured for us upon the cross. Lord, would you raise us from our scepticism, our selfishness, our fearfulness, our indifference. Would you be changing us? Would the word of the Lord come to us with fresh power in your limitless patience? Would you thrill us by the salvation you so graciously gifted to us? And would you commission us afresh to go and speak in Christ's name, to live as those who fear the Lord and seek to persuade men and women and children? Would you give a fresh spirit of encouragement, Lord, to the dear church family here, spur them on to attempt great things for you? Lord, we think of the teeming hundreds of thousands in southwest London. We're hungry for them. We thank you so much for planted churches and much gospel labour. Lord, would you bring that work to a triumphant harvest that the Lord Jesus would have much glory in the salvation of souls and the establishment of churches. And we pray these prayers in Jesus' name. Amen. Just we uh, kind of get into groups. Just five minutes, quick chat. Uh, look at the question at the bottom.